1: Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. As we've said in the past, what would we do without the word of God? Where would our light come from, Lord? Where would our comfort come from? Where would our joy come from? And so this morning, Lord, as we open and study your word, we treasure it and value it and ask you, Lord Jesus, to reveal yourself to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 22, and we'll start here in verse 7. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went "...and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son." And Abraham called the name of the place, Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of thy enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. All right, now, in our last study, what we saw here was Abraham, and we saw him reach over. It says he got stretched out. Wherever he had that knife, he had to reach for it, and he took the knife, and he was going to kill Isaac. That's the picture we have in verse 10, where it says, Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now, That verse has to be put within a particular backdrop in order to see the importance of it. So we need to get the backdrop right here in order to see just how impactful this verse is. And the backdrop that makes this verse so meaningful, in this is the time when we first saw Abraham in Genesis 12, as he's going down into Egypt, we saw him there, he's about to enter into Egypt, he's traveling down there, he's about to enter Egypt, and something very strange happens to Abraham, and it says in Genesis 12, 11 through 12, and it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai, his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon, therefore it shall, he didn't say it maybe. he said, it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, and they will save thee alive. I mean, in Abraham's mind, this wasn't a perhaps, this was an absolute, it's going to happen this way. So what we see here with Abraham is that he's approaching Egypt, and a very real fear it's hard for us to understand it's hard for us to understand and that's the way fear is fear is not logical but nevertheless it was very real for abraham that he has this fear come over him that he's going to die that he's going to be killed so that sarah could be taken for a wife an egyptian and we don't really know why abraham had this fear but he did it doesn't matter why he did It, it was real to him it was very real fear we saw in this picture that Abraham had a very real fear of dying. He was afraid of death. And this fear of death really gripped him and took control of him as he came here into Egypt. For some reason, we don't know why, he saw the greatness of Egypt, or he was convinced that there were murders, whatever it was, and he was convinced that he's going to die because Sarah's so beautiful. We should have such a problem, right? (laughs) <laughs> and it was Abraham's words in Genesis 12, 12, they'll kill me, they will kill me. And it's very important for us to consider this as a backdrop for what we're reading now. Now we know that as we've studied Abraham, he told the same lie again when he was coming to the land of the Philistines, when Abimelech actually challenged Abraham and said to him, why did you do that? Why did you lie to me and you put me and my people in such danger of being destroyed? Why did you do that? And Abraham said in Genesis 20, 10 through 11, he said, And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawst thou that thou hast done this thing? See, that's the question that we ask, too. What did you see, Abraham, as you were approaching Egypt, that you were gripped by this fear? What did you see, Abraham, in the land of the Philistines, that you were convinced? And Abraham said, Because I thought. Surely the fear of God is not in this place. So Abraham saw there was no fear of God among the Philistines. And then he said, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. So Abraham, again, he's got this fear of dying. It's never left him since he came out of Egypt. He looks again at the Philistines and he said, and he's afraid of dying. He's convinced he's going to die because Sarah is so beautiful. Anyway, and in these words, in Genesis twelve twelve, they will kill me. In Genesis twenty eleven, they will slay me. See, it's all about, this is all, you, we gotta get ourselves in the mind frame of Abraham. It's all about, they'll kill me, they'll slay me, they'll kill me, they'll slay me. That was Abraham. He was a man who was afraid of death. He feared death. So you put those statements, Abraham's statements, of they will kill me, they will slay me, and you hang that as a backdrop to Genesis 22, 10, and now you read, and Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. That's when you see the, how profound it is. Here was a man who had an obsession with the fear of death, but now to obey God, in order to obey God and convinced of God's power to resurrect from the dead, this same man who feared death, he's now stretching out his hand and he's going to take the knife to kill his son. That shows us the power of God to make a person who in himself is afraid. And he's overcome with the fear of death. He's so afraid. But now God's power makes him so willing in obedience, even he's going to kill his son. And if we went up to Abraham at this point and we said, Abraham, we know that you are a man who has shown himself to have a particular fear of death. How are you able now to take this knife and raise it over to Isaac? What happened to you that gave you this power to overcome this fear of death? What happened to Abraham? What were you thinking, Abraham? What were you thinking that gave you the power to overcome the fear of death? And Abraham would reply, thinking? Thinking? What was I thinking to give me the power to overcome my fear of death? I'll tell you what I was thinking. A very powerful thought. A very powerful thought that gave me the power to overcome my personal fear of death. What was it? And then Abraham would use the words of Hebrews eleven nineteen, And he'd say, I was thinking this. I was thinking that I was accounting that God was able to raise Isaac up from the dead, even from the dead, to raise him up, even from the dead. And that phrase, from the dead, from the dead. And then it says, from whence he also received him in a figure. It was that thought of God's ability to raise from the dead that overcame Abraham's fear of death. And it's not only true of Abraham, it's true of us as well. How can we lose our fear of death? How can we face death and look death in the face and not be afraid? By dwelling on the same thought, by dispelling ignorance, dispelling ignorance with knowledge. And that's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. I wouldn't have you ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant, he says, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as those others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so also them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. See, Paul was saying there, we have a sorrow at death of a loved one, don't I know that, but not the sorrow of what we call the sorrow of others. And Paul went on to describe what is the sorrow of others. The sorrow of others are, as he said, the sorrow of others which have no hope which have no hope. You know, that reminds me of a trip that our, our team of us from the company took. We made it to Germany several years ago. I don't remember, maybe 12 years ago. It was an international uh, trade show that happens every year in Medica in uh, Dusseldorf. So accompanying us was our director from Japan. He lives in Yokohama, Japan. And he had an uncle in his family, and an uncle, and he was a very strong Christian. He was the only Christian in his family, but he was very, uh, very vocal, very evangelical, very tried to win others, his family to the Lord. And our Japanese colleague had made it very clear that he resisted the gospel, and instead he chose to live without God in the world. So our Japanese colleague also is a chain smoker, and so while he was outside in the German hotel and smoking, smoking and smoking, my friend John struck up a conversation with him outside the hotel there, and he said to him, so what do you think of God, and what do you think of life after death? And with that question, our Japanese colleague, he took out a match, and he lit it, and he's holding it up there. He didn't say anything, just took out this match, he lit it, burned about halfway down the match, and the match kind of curled over on itself, and then he blew it out, and as the smoke was rising from the burnt stick, he said, after death? And he lifted up again, the smoldering curled up match with the smoke he said this is what happens after death he says absolutely nothing he said when you die you die you're just like this match there's nothing after death that was saying no hope after death that was his testimony no hope after death if we believed if we believed like him then we would be the describe but what paul said in first corinthians 15 19 and when he said if in this life only we have hope in christ we are of all men most miserable just color us miserable And Abraham did not have hope in Jehovah Jesus in this life only. And we do not have hope in Christ in this life only. As it says in Proverbs 14, 32, the wicked is driven away in his wickedness, but the righteous have hope in his death. Abraham looked at this impending death of Isaac and he said, Isaac, like me, has been clothed in the righteousness, as we talked about where he said that God clothed him, wove into him, imputed unto him righteousness when he believed God. He says he, had the, he was clothed in the righteousness of Jehovah Jesus, and so Isaac has hope in his death. And Brother Jim McDonald called me last night and comforted me about Cheryl's leaving this world last Wednesday, and Jim said, that's gotta be the most difficult thing you have gone through in life. And so I said to him, that is not the most difficult thing I've gone through in my life. What was more difficult for me to go through in my life was my prior life without the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul described, this was difficult in Ephesians 2.12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in this world. It's basically two ways to go through something like this, either with God or without God. And Abraham looked at the world around him, and he said, I am not without Jehovah Jesus. I'm not a stranger to God's covenants. I have hope. I have God in this world. So it's all about hope, and this issue about hope is the reason why we go to the Jewish people. See, Paul's saying here, our hope's a person. Our hope's not a religion. Our hope is not a doctrine. Our hope is not a dogma. Our hope is not a way of life. Our hope is not our knowledge of the Bible. Our hope is a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's our hope. And a person who has the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior, he has hope. And a person who does not have the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior doesn't have hope. I spoke to my cousin this last week who told me that because I have the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, she announced to me that I used to be Jewish. She said that. Got the proclamation. What can I say? <laughs> So, if the definition today of being Jewish is to not have the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, then the definition of being Jewish today is to not have hope. And that makes the Jewish people say, Ezekiel 37, 11, our hope is lost. The hope of the Jewish people is lost because the Jewish people have lost their Messiah. They've lost the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is lost, or we lost our hope, or we lost our Messiah. In verse 12, when it says, And he said, Lay not, God said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. So when we look at verse 12 and see how God restrained Abraham, our minds are drawn to a scene. In verse 12, we're kind of filling in the blanks here, and we can see Isaac now getting off that altar. And boy, did he get off that altar fast. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't waste any time. You know? And that altar represented death. It represented death to Abraham. It represented death to Isaac. And that means for Abraham that Isaac, when he put him on the altar, he was putting him into the realm of death. And that means that when he got off that altar, Isaac was coming from the dead. That's the phrase. And that scene there in verse 12 of Isaac getting off that altar, that's what's referred to in Hebrews 11:19 when he said that Abraham was accounting that God is able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. See, when it says, from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure, that means that as Isaac got off that altar, and Abraham saw him get off that altar, that Abraham saw Isaac coming out from the dead. And that's why it says that he came from the dead, from whence he also received him in a figure. See, the Greek word there in Hebrews eleven nineteen 19, for figure, is the word paraboli, which is obviously where we get our word parable from. So it means... That as Isaac got off that altar of death, that Abraham saw a great parable. He saw a great analogy. He saw a great comparison there of God raising from the dead. And Isaac getting off that altar is an analogy, an analogy of the Lord Jesus Christ as the firstfruits being raised from the dead. As he said in Revelation 1:18, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Amen. All the people said, amen, along with the Lord. All right, good. So now, when we read now in verse 13, it's very important for us as it describes what happens to a person, particularly a Jewish person, as he makes the Lord Jesus Christ his Savior. See, it says there in verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. So first we see that Abraham lifts up his eyes and he looks. He looks. It's very natural for a person. You know it comes very natural to us? To look at ourselves. We naturally have this bent to be introspective. I don't know why we do that, but we like to do that. We like to get caught up with ourselves and with our problems. We fall right into the trap, the Proverbs 18, 2 trap, where it says, The fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. See, a fool has one delight in life, and that's he can look inside himself. See, that's why many people are attracted. I always found that when I was going to college. So many people were attracted to psychology, and I thought to myself, they have so many problems, so many social problems. Those are the people who get attracted to psychology, you know, <laughs> disorders. And I understood that they wanted to study psychology because they had psychological problems. And so a person who's preoccupied with analyzing himself, he'll never come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's too busy, lost in the delight of analyzing himself. So when it says in verse 13 that Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, we understand the symbolism behind the importance of looking away from himself. And he looks away from himself. He looks away from all the problems of himself. He looks there. And then it says in verse 13, in verse 13, where does it say that the ram was in relation to Abraham? That's a question. Behind him, right? Good. Behind him. All right. See, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, that means we're supposed to stop and really look at this. <laughs> behold, behind him, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. The ram was not in front of him, which would be maybe symbolic of Abraham progressing to the ram. The ram was not on the side of Abraham, which may have been like uh, symbolic of uh, whatever. The ram was behind Abraham, which is symbolic of Abraham having his back to the ram. See, this has particular meaning for the Jewish people because the ram represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And the ram's not in front of the Jewish people. He's not on the side of the Jewish people. He's not in front of Abraham. He's not on the side of Abraham. It's behind Abraham, meaning that when the Jewish people discover the Lord Jesus Christ is their God, they're going to discover that they have turned their back on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it says in John 1, 11. He came unto his own. His own received him not. Paraphrased, they turned their back on him. In Isaiah 53, 2 through 3. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He had no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, the Jewish people speaking, when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. So what happens? Verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He's despised. He is rejected of men. And therefore, he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He is despised. We esteemed him not. See, in these verses in Isaiah 53, it just keeps going over and over and over again of uh, how much they turned the back to him. No beauty that we should desire him. So what do you do when there's some something not desirably beauty? You turn the back. You put him behind. He's despised and rejected of men. What do you do when a person is despised and rejected of men? You put him behind. Turn the back. He's despised. We esteemed him not. What do you do? When you despise and you assign no value to a person, you put them behind the back. And God describes this so graphically in Jeremiah 2.27 when he says, he says, they have turned their back unto me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. You know, we make about face. Another place in Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-three, God again states the same thing about the Jewish people. He said, they have turned their back and not the face. Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. This is a great warning for us. It's a great warning for us that when God speaks to us about he wants us to repent of, to change, that we turn to him the face and not the back. So Israel is described as not only turning their back to God and not their face, but God has another description them in Zechariah 7:11, where he says, "But they refused to hearken, and they pulled the shoulder and stopped their ears; they should not hear." See, that's very graphic. You can see God coming alongside, and He puts His hand. You know, if you're, you do that to a kid sometimes, and you can tell exactly if that kid's rebellious or not. He says, "Get your hands off me! Yeah, pull the shoulder away." You know, and God comes along and He tries to stop a person in their sin and tries to reason with them. Instead of that person turning and says, what have I done wrong, and how do I need to change? He says, get your hands off me, God, and he pulls the shoulder away. And God doesn't tolerate that forever. And this turning the back to him, this not facing him, this pulling the shoulder away, it reaches a limit where God says that, you know what he's going to do? Exactly the same thing. In Jeremiah 18:17, he said, I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. So the Jewish people turning their back to the Lord Jesus Christ puts the Lord Jesus Christ behind them. And that's why it's so symbolic that Abraham finds the ram in verse 13 behind him. And so that's very important in verse 13, and that's why it's prefaced the position with the word behold. Whenever the Bible uses the word behold, it means surprise. This is not what you expect. Stop and do a selah on this one. Behold, behind him. It speaks of how surprising it is. And how surprising it will be for the jewish people when they finally discover that the lord jesus christ is their messiah who they put behind them so it shows us that next read in verse 13 abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns and abraham and went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son so when abraham sees this ram and he's caught by his horn there in this bush abraham realizes oh this is the ram that God has provided for me to offer. That's what he realizes. And he lifts up his eyes, he sees this ram and he sees the ram that God has provided. So the fact that God provided the ram that reminds us of how the Lord Jesus Christ is the provided lamb of God because he was sent. And that's the word sent. And that's the word he used after the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16 or the next verse, John 3:17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And Galatians four four. but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. And in 1 John 4.9, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. See John 3.17, God sent his son Galatians four one God sent forth His Son. First John four nine God sent His only begotten Son.
0: Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at Friendship with God. or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org, Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Starting September 25th, join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. On opening day, September 25th, we'll have Phil's Barbecue with special guest musician Jim Earp. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher Tom Cantor in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere.